You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. Sojourn J-Town, it is a pleasure to be here, this haircut notwithstanding. Um, always glad to be able to come and share the Word of God with you. And uh, it is a blessing this morning, whether we're able to gather together personally or whether we do it virtually, that we get to call each other the church, that, that we get to call each other uh, a family. Uh, and that is at the heart of the text that we just read. And it's the heart of what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at Matthew 18. And we're doing this because... Matthew 18 is considered one of the five discourses of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And all that means is there's these five lessons we're very familiar with, with one of those, the Sermon on the Mount. But there's five of them within the book of Matthew. And this particular one, uh, Matthew 18 as a whole, is considered the discourse on the church or essentially a lesson on the church. What does it mean for us to be the transformed community of God? And so that's the heart of the question that we're going to ask this morning is what does it mean for Sojourn J-Town to be a transformed kingdom community? And it uh, it's kind of seems ironic a little bit that we're talking about that right now when we can't gather together, but it's actually the perfect time because it's, it's a moment in which um, the, the, the things that we're so used to and so comfortable with have gotten stripped away and we really get to ask the question, what does it mean for us to be the church? And so uh, this is what, what Jesus is teaching the disciples. It's what he's, what he's teaching us. And I just want to pray for us this morning that, that our eyes and hearts would be open to what God would have for us. So pray with me. Father, we, we, do, uh, we do ask that this morning your spirit, wherever we are scattered uh, around the city, uh, Lord, that you um, would, would open our hearts to your word, that, that the challenges that you had for your disciples that are also for us, uh, would make a difference, that would, would, would challenge us and transform us into the community that you desire, one that glorifies you, the Son of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the question we're going to ask. What does it mean for us to be a transformed community? And I, and I think from this text, we can, we can um, glean kind of four main points out of this text. And we're going to go through them. And that's One is that we'd be committed to one another, that we'd be humbled by the grace we receive, that we would draw close to Jesus for heart transformation, and ultimately that we would be marked by love and forgiveness. That's where we're going to go. So I don't want to bury the lead. That's where we're headed. So if you're taking notes, that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, um, um, we're going we're to go back to the beginning of Matthew 18, because this whole discourse uh, is prompted by a question from the disciples. It's the t- disciples asked Jesus, as, uh, as uh, Pastor Josh did a great job with last week, he talked about this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so Josh did a great job of kind of unpacking Jesus' answer um, of that. And we're going to now look at it from a, a bigger picture of what it means to be the church as a whole. Um, Jesus replies with three Three images. The first Josh did last week talked about faith like a child. What does it mean to have faith like a child? He also gives a parable of the lost sheep. Uh, this, this idea that, that if, you, uh, if you have a hundred sheep and one gets lost, that we would leave those sheep and uh, leave the 99 and go to the one. 
And then he gives uh, the, what is kind of understood as kind of the church discipline passage or the restoration of a brother. Um, this, this essentially a process by which if you've been sinned against by a brother or sister in the faith, how would you go about restoring them uh, within the body? And so there's a combination of these three things, this picture of faith like a child and the lost sheep and the restoration of a brother that, that needs to come together for us to be able to apply it correctly. Because some of these passages, including restoration of a brother, when it's taken out of this context, can, can, can actually cause significant trouble in the church, and it has for many decades, and continues to cause trouble if we lose that context. You see, what's happening in these three images is that Jesus is challenging our understanding of, of our social economy. And what I mean by our social economy is that what is the currency by which uh, the economy of the church is supposed to operate? If you think of the world, the world operates on a social economy of works, that I do work and I'm rewarded for that work. Um, it's a transactional economy uh, that I do good things because I'm going to get a reward. And so if you think of that social economy, it's a very self-oriented economy. What do I need to do to be the best? What do I need to do to win? What do I need to do to achieve my goals? If you want to see a great example of this, most of you have probably already watched the ESPN um, uh, special this last month on uh, The Last Dance of Michael Jordan. If you want to understand what a world economy is about, it is win at all costs. The ends justify the means. That's kind of the socio-economy of the world. And what Jesus does is he flips that upside down because the disciples are still in that economy. They're asking the question, who is the greatest? Why do we ask that question? We ask that question because we want to know what, who sets the mark? How do I attain greatness in the kingdom of God? If I know who's the greatest, then I know how to attain greatness. And Jesus flips that upside down. He does that first by elevating the least productive people in our society, right? Children, as, as Josh uh, uh, talked last week, taught us last week, they're dependent. They're utterly dependent on us. They're not producing anything for our, our uh, society. They're not, um, they're not going to win in, a, in an adult world. And yet Jesus elevates them as, as the image of what it means to be held high in the kingdom. He, taught, he brings out the image of the lost sheep, that they would lead the 99, which is in some ways a, a, a symbol of success, to find the one lost sheep. And then, of course, the restoration of uh, someone who has not just sinned, they've sinned against you. And so to have a mentality that takes these ideas and says, um, if our value is to win, then none of this makes sense. But in the kingdom of God, he's saying, rather than being self-oriented, the kingdom of God is others-oriented. That we would look to the child and elevate them. That we would look for the lost sheep. That we would care about the restoration of our brother. You see, in a world economy, if your brother stumbles, that's only a win for you. Because as they, as they get reduced, you get elevated. That's how the world works. But in the kingdom economy, we actually have a desire to lift our brother and sister up. We have a desire to see them thrive, to see them grow in their Christ-likeness. And there is a selflessness 
to that. And that's what Jesus seems to be doing here as he reorients them to what it means to be a kingdom community. See, the point of Matthew 18, it's, it's not about getting the process right. That's what the disciples are asking. How do I get it right? But in the kingdom of God, it's about orienting our heart towards seeing others come to know Jesus and thrive in life with him. That's what he's calling us to. Now, if we look at the second half of chapter 18, we have another catalyzing question. And uh, Pastor Lau read this for us this morning. So in light of this response, so Jesus says, says look, guys, you're... you're your orientation is wrong. The kingdom is oriented in this way that we would want to restore one another, that we'd see each other and belong to each, each other. And then Peter asked this question, well, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? And I guess in some ways, this is a pretty logical question, right? So he's Jesus has given this picture of going after the lost sheep. He's given this picture of restoration. The, the, the process by which restoration occurs is no easy task, right? You have to go to your, your brother and confront them, which most of us don't like to do. If they continue to persist in sin, you have to bring others with you. If they continue, you have to then go to the church. It is a process of sacrifice, of self-sacrifice, of willing to go and care about the well-being and the soul of a brother or sister. It's pretty intense. And so Peter's asking, well, how many times do I have to do that? You know, and, and Jesus said, you know, if they, if, they, if they continue to persist in their sin, there is a point at which you just say, you're done. But, but Peter seems to be asking, well, what if, what if we get partway through and then they confess their sin and they repent, but then they do it again? You know, how many times do I have to, to do this? And, you know, maybe he had some people in mind. Maybe right now you can think of some people. Um, maybe you're sitting next to your, your sibling this morning uh, with your family, and you're thinking, yeah, how many times do I have to forgive my sister? It totally makes sense, but it also reveals that Peter is still thinking in a worldly economy, is he not? He still wants to know, when have I done enough. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not about doing enough. We sang this morning beautiful songs about how there's nothing we can bring, but it's through the grace of Jesus Christ that we have been saved. We teach this in our Sunday schools. We, te- we, we talk about this in our community groups. Every Sunday we preach this, and yet this is so hard for us to change the way we think. Let me give you an example. If I were to ask you this morning, uh, how do you know when you're close to God? Or say, how do you judge your proximity to God? What would you say? And as a pastor, I've got four kids. I also do a fair amount of counseling. When I ask this question, you can imagine the most likely answer. It's usually, well, I think I would sin less. I'm sure some of you thought that when I asked the question. The problem is that's still a world economy, that I, if I'm close to God, it would, it would reveal itself in sinning less. That's a works-based, rea- a works-based interaction with God. No, if we're close to God, it would, it, would, it would be a heart transformation. 
We would have empathy and we would overflow with love for our brothers and sisters. That's how we know that we're close to God. Now, that might lead to less sin in our life, surely, but that's not what's happening. It's not that I can just, I'm controlling my sin because I'm close to God. There's lots of ways to control your sin. Uh, If you knew you were going to get fired for a certain sin, you could control your sin, at least for a little bit, to avoid getting fired. There's lots of things that can help us control our sin, but the only thing that can really build in us that empathy and fill us with love is the Father. It's relationship with God who, when we're close to Him, um, we, we get filled with that love and that love flows from us. And so when Peter asks this question, well, when is enough enough? He's thinking in that world economy. And it makes sense, right? Because if you imagine if you've got, I mean, I don't think anyone here has 100 sheep, but if you did, you know, the first time you lost that sheep, You can imagine how you'd respond. You'd be like, oh no, we lost Snowball. Snowball's got to be so scared out there in the dark. We've got to go find them. I'm going to leave the 99 to find Snowball. But the fourth time Snowball leaves, you might think a little different. You'd be like, man, that sheep got out again. Can you believe it? Why does that sheep keep running away? And by the eighth time, you're going to start misquoting scripture, right? Well, you reap what you sow. Better hope there's no uh, wolves out there, right? That's kind of the human mindset, and it seems to be Peter's mindset. What, when have I done enough? And so what Jesus does with this is that he responds with a hyperbole and a parable. Uh, you could do tongue twisters with that at home uh, after we're done. So the hyperbole, he, he responds with, well, maybe put it this way. When Peter says seven times, he, he assumes he's being generous, Right? Like, do we understand that? Like, when he says, should I forgive him seven times, he thinks he's gone way over. You know, he's assuming, like, the answer is, like, you know, one or two times, but if they continue, then they're persisting and you should let them go. When he says, should I, seven times, he's trying to impress Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, 77 times, or seven times seven, however you want to interpret that response. And that response is intended to be outrageous. It's intended to be hyperbolic that, like, no, there's no limit to how many times that you would want to forgive and restore your brother or your sister. You see, in contrast, human forgiveness is limited. There's only so much we can muster in ourselves to say, I'm willing to forgive that person. But in the kingdom of God, God's forgiveness is unlimited. The well from which we drink, it's a fountain that never ends that the grace that God has for us, it just continues to come and continues to come. And when we connect to God, then we can also have that kind of mentality, that kind of heart towards one another. You know, in a human perspective, we tend to see that kind of grace as weakness, don't we? When someone continues to offer grace, we're like, well, they just, they just, they're just weak. Like, they don't, they're not willing to stand up um, for what's right. But in the kingdom of God, it seems to be the way of the kingdom that we would desire restoration. It may not always be possible, as even in the example that Jesus gave, but that we would desire it. That is a kingdom heart. Not only that, it's also necessary for us in the church. If we want to be a transformed kingdom community, knowing full well that though we are fully justified in Christ, we are also in the process of being sanctified, which means we're going to continue to mess up. 
we're going to continue to sin. We're going to continue to hurt one another. And we're going to require forgiveness. So not only do I need to be able to forgive, which I, I need the Holy Spirit working in me to do, I also need the assurance that I can be forgiven. Not only from God, but also if I'm going to be in a transformed community, I need that assurance that I can be forgiven within this community. Otherwise, we all walk around with shame and fear that at some point that the, the, the end of grace is going to come, the end of forgiveness is going to come. And the beauty of being the church is that we can tap into the heart of God and that we can actually forgive like God forgives. That we can find, uh, we can find that well that doesn't, that doesn't end. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, in the kingdom of God, our heart should be to desire the restoration of others. To see that as the goal. Not to get the process right. You see why it's so important that we understand the whole when we go to, go to church discipline, right? Is that the point of the church discipline is the desire for restoration. The desire to see someone restored. And what is restoration? You know, restoration is the... It's the act of reclaiming former glory. If, if there's some folks out there that like to restore cars, or maybe you just like to watch the shows like I do on TV, of uh, them restoring cars, or if you've ever wanted to restore a house, you know, take a house that's been dilapidated and build it. Why do we like to watch these shows? Why do we like to, some of us, do these type of things? It's because we remember the former glory. We remember the beauty, remember the lines of the car, we remember the, 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 the majesty of the house, and we're like, man, with just some love and care and investment, we could bring it back to its former glory. And that's what restoration is. It's the desire to see someone, our brother or sister, restored to that former glory. Now, if you're like me, that's not always my heart. Sometimes uh, if someone has hurt me, and I get it, it's hard, is I want them to remember what they did. I think of it more like a resto mod, if you're familiar with that term. So a, a resto mod in the car world is you restore it, but you change it. You make it how you want it to be. And unfortunately for the church, we often operate in resto mod mode, not restoration mode. Meaning I want you to be restored, but I also want you to be changed to be how I want you to be. That's the human condition, right? I want mercy from those that I've sinned against. We see that in the parable. I want justice for those who have sinned against me. In the kingdom, it's our recognition of the forgiven, the forgiven debt inspires us to want that same restoration, that same return to glory for our brothers and sisters. That is a complete paradigm shift from the way that we operate apart from Christ. And we see even in Jesus' example early in Matthew 18, this isn't always possible. Some sins make it very difficult to trust someone again and and therefore complete restoration may not be possible until Jesus returns. The call for us is to desire such a restoration even if it can't happen. It's to have a heart that says, It might not be until Jesus returns that this person could be restored, but I would want them to be restored. It doesn't negate the need for justice. It doesn't negate the the reality of consequences. It's a call to a desire for others that they would receive 
what we have received in Christ. That the forgiveness that we've felt, that they would also feel and be transformed. And so that brings us to the, the second point of what it means to be a transformed community. The first one was to be committed to one another, that we belong to one another, that our hearts would desire the restoration. That's, that's a commitment to one another. And the second is this idea of being humbled by the grace that we'd received, that, that our recognition of our forgiven debt. And that's what Jesus' parable is about. His challenge to the parable is this, is that to the degree with which uh, you have trouble restoring others is the degree to which you fail to recognize your own sin against God. We have this picture in the parable, right, of, of uh, the slave who has, is profoundly in debt. We're talking millions of dollars in debt. And the judge comes, or the, the master comes, and he calls in his debt and says, you need, to, you need to pay it back. And what does he do but beg for mercy? He even says, I'll pay you back. But the reality is, the amount of debt that the slave is in, just like you and I before God, is impossible to pay it back. He's saying, if you just give me mercy, I'll pay you back. Worldly economy, right? I'll do, I'll do good, I'll pay it back, I'll make it right. But the master knows there's no way. You could work for me for a thousand years and you never pay off this much debt. That's how deep in debt you are. And so the master does something miraculous. He says, I forgive it all. And that's the position that you and I are in this morning. This morning we stand here worshiping Jesus because though we dug a deep, deep well of debt and rebellion against God, Jesus came, lived the life we should have lived. He died in our place and he rose, conquering Satan, sin and death, forgiving our debt, wiped out a debt that you and I could never pay back, ever. We could never do enough good. Our, our works are like filthy rags. There's nothing we could do to pay the debt we owed God. Jesus, knowing this, came lived, died, and rose again in our place. What a beautiful picture. Fortunately for slave in the parable, that has no effect on him as he goes and deals with his brother who owes him, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks. He's been, re- he's been forgiven for millions, and then he goes, and as you've heard the parable, he sends his brother to jail until he pays him back. Now, the point of this parable, I think we have to be careful because we do have this, this ending of this parable where Jesus says, so my heavenly Father will do to you unless even one of you, or unless every one of you forgives his brother and sister. This intent of this parable is not to say, hey, watch out, you could lose your salvation if you're not very forgiving. I think there is some warning there, but the, we don't believe we can lose our salvation. The whole of Scripture makes that very clear, is that we did not earn our salvation, so we cannot unearn it. The intent of the salvation, is, or intent of this parable, is to be shocking. It's to be outrageous. It's to be like, it's, it's for us to read it or hear it said and say, no one, no one would do that. I know in our culture today, it's kind of hard to be shocked by anyone's behavior. 
But if you think of the reality here where if you were, were um, indebted for millions and today it was forgiven and tomorrow someone came and said, I know I owe you a hundred bucks, you would forgive it. That would be the logical um, the logical path by which we would receive such a gift. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is, of course, that is ridiculous. No one would act this way. And he's, he's essentially saying to Peter, Peter, if you recognize the debt that you have been forgiven, you would not be concerned with the number of times you need to forgive your brother or sister. You would just desire their restoration. If you, if you understand, you're asking a question about what if someone sins against me? How, how much forgiveness, how much grace should I extend? Well, if you, if you see that in light of the grace that has been extended to you, then you would, you would go day in and day out desiring the restoration of your brother and sister because it pales in comparison with uh, your sin that had been forgiven in Christ. That's the point. And essentially, when Jesus comes to the end of this parable and he says, um, also my father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister, he's saying, we cannot claim to be the community of God, the transformed kingdom community of God if we don't change. If we are not a place where, where we forgive one another, where we are filled with the love of God and that overflows through us, then maybe nothing has actually happened. If nothing has changed, then nothing has changed. If we are not different and transformed by that forgiveness, by that grace, by that mercy, we do have to ask the question, have we received it? In John 13, Jesus says, says this, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We know the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love one another. This is the heart transformation of a community of believers, of a community of, of, uh, of the kingdom of God that has been transformed by the person and work of Jesus that we, we, we demonstrate an overflow of love for one another. That's the picture. That's what it means to be that community. question is, how do we do heart transformation? The reason that a worldly economy works so well for us is because it's very clear we know what to do. If I do these things and I do them enough, then I'm good. In a kingdom economy, it's about heart transformation, about a heart that desires presence with God and, and care and love and empathy for others. So how do we do that? So if we look at our question, what does it mean to be a transformed kingdom community? He said that we can be committed to one another, humbled by the grace that we've received. And the third is to draw close to Jesus for heart transformation. See, heart transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Heart transformation happens when we are close to Jesus, when, when we experience the presence of Christ in our life, transforms our hearts. Ezekiel 36 God says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the work that Christ does in us. You see, the, the call to biblical forgiveness and, and, and the heart that it requires, it's a supernatural 
event. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit. I can muster myself only so far to do good uh, as we see it in the world, but I cannot change my heart. I need Christ to do that for me. You know, this week, as I uh, did a devotional uh, with my kids, we talked about an analogy. This isn't a new analogy. It's not a profound analogy. But it, we were talking about this idea of being close to, to God and what does that look like. And the analogy was just to use, think of God as a campfire. And the closer we get to the fire, the warmer we become. And the farther we get from the fire, the colder we are. And while this analogy has limits, I know, you don't, don't need to send me emails, I know that God pursues us. He's not a static campfire that we have to come to. But the, the concept makes sense, right? That if I have a cold heart towards people, if I have a cold heart towards my sister or my brother or a cold heart towards my friend or my spouse, the only way that that heart thaws is I draw close to God who gives us His heart, who renews in us, who gives us that heart of flesh, removes our heart of stone. We need that supernatural work. And so we need to, to draw close to the one, to the source of life. And sometimes we just need to cry out. And that's okay. We need to cry out to God. Psalm 51, the psalmist cries out, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This should be a cry on the lips of our community uh, all the time. Because there's so many times when I know that, that um, my heart and my spirit is not aligned with what God would want of me, that, that I become self-oriented, I become uh, self-focused, and, and I just need to cry out, God, just make, make it right. Make my heart right. Help me to live a life that reflects your truth. And so if we want a community to be marked by forgiveness of one another, we must draw close to Jesus we need to be people of prayer. We need to be people of the Word. And sometimes we just need to sit in the presence of God and be quiet. And what, I know, a difficult season we're in, but what an amazing opportunity we have to just find stillness. And so what does forgiveness in a transformed community look like? There's a lot that can be said here. One, you know, the, the, the word forgiveness in the text um, means to, to hurl away. And it kind of has this connotation of a violent hurling, a violent throwing away. And uh, if, you think about, if you think about this analogy, uh, when we take out the trash, uh, our goal is to get rid of it. And uh, I, grew up, I grew up in rural Michigan, and we had burn barrels where we would, uh, we would burn our trash. Please don't send me text on that one. Um, we didn't know better. Um, we burned our trash, and then when the burn barrel got full, we would put it in a truck, and we'd take it to the dump, and we would violently throw the trash into the dump. We never wanted to see it again, right? And that's the picture that we have of forgiveness, that when, when we forgive someone, that we would want to violently throw it away. It would seem very odd to keep trash around your house so that you could pull it back out and remind people of what we've thrown away. But oftentimes, that's how we interact with one another, where we say, I forgive you, but if you hurt me again, I'm going to bring this back and put it in your face. Ken Sandy wrote a book called Peacemakers, and he said there's, there's four promises that we make when we, when we truly forgive someone. 
The first is I will not dwell on this incident. So I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to sit and have 7,000 fake conversations in my head. I do it. You do it. We all do it. Um, When I start to have those conversations, I'm going to pray that God would would take captive those thoughts. And I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to dwell on it. That's number one. Number two, I'll not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I'm not going to keep the trash in the back of the house and bring it out every time, uh, every time I feel hurt again. Number three, I'm not going to talk to others about this incident. It, true forgiveness, um, we can have a, a, um, a reconciliation between us and where I'm not going out and trying to uh, drag your name through the mud. But I'm not going to talk to everybody about it. And then lastly, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. True forgiveness allows us to stay in community. And as we said before, we're going to hurt each other from time to time as a community because we see each other more. We're closer to one another. We care about what each other thinks. So if we're going to be a transformed community, we have to have that kind of forgiveness where we don't let these, these slights and sins against one another hinder our relationship. And that's the picture that Jesus is painting for us as he calls us to this transformed community that we would truly see each other as a body, as a family committed to one another. That we'd be humbled by that grace and that would, that would flow through us to grace to other people. That we would draw close to Jesus so that our hearts can be transformed and then ultimately that we would be a community here in J-Town for the world to see that is marked by love and forgiveness of one another. And that's my prayer for us at J-Town. You know, we close every service um, with uh, taking of communion, which is a, a picture of this transaction that as we, even if we're gathered in different homes around the city, that, that as we break bread, whatever whatever you have available, and we take it together, it's a reminder that we are a transformed community, that we belong to one another. So we break bread together as a symbol of Christ whose body was broken for us, that that we do that together saying that we belong to one another. Also, take the cup. And the cup represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for you and for me that washes us clean, that reminds us of how much we have been forgiven and allows us, therefore, to, from that well to forgive others, to extend that love, to desire for them restoration in the body of Christ. That's the picture this morning of communion. And so you're able to do that at home. We do that together as a family across the city. Let me pray for us this morning. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.